Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets fans? What's up, listeners of the Mets Up Podcast? We are back here with another episode, episode number 40 of the Mets Up Podcast, after a series against the Washington Nationals that, compared to what's happened the last few weeks, was fantastic, but, you know, there's still some things to take note of there. Anyway, great series against the Nationals. Of course, I'm your co-host, Neck Mark. Mark Luino here with James Schiano. Jeter had no range. Always talking Mets baseball after every single series. You guys can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. You can also watch the video version on YouTube. The YouTube has been banging recently. Thank you to everybody for listening and watching over there as well. Metzed Up Podcast. Search us. You'll find us. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Metzed Up. And let's talk about those Mets because we just swept the Washington Nationals, which is not much of an accomplishment. But the way that this team has been playing, it feels like we're on top of the world again almost. I mean, it's such a difference of how this episode feels compared to the last one. The last two, really. But... This is what we were supposed to do. The Mets really couldn't have gone forward with a season of competitive baseball if they did not sweep the Nationals. Even after winning the first two games and heading into Game 2 just a few hours ago, Ronnie said it himself, like, those two games mean nothing if you can't get all three of them here. Because you're only really making up one game on everybody else instead of having all three wins in your uh, bag. Especially with how the last game of the series could have ended, it almost ruined my entire day. So we will get to that at some point. Of course, we're going to start off with game one here. We had Carlos Carrasco on the mound, who's been looking pretty solid for us, but something that maybe is something to keep an eye out for here. Not been starting games great. Didn't get off to a great start in this one against the Nationals, but it also wasn't a great start in terms of it just started pouring, raining immediately. I don't even know why we started this game. This has happened all year long. No, it was like really clear it was going to rain between 7 and 8 on Tuesday night. Everyone and their mother knew it. If you have a weather app, like it was very clear it was going to happen. The radar was just a big blotch of green and orange and yellow and all these really scary colors. It was kind of the antithesis of the game that we tried to go to against the Brewers that got rained out. Yeah, because on that night, we were going to the game. And we saw that rain was coming, so we made a detour, went to a bar instead. It poured. It was crazy, and we mm-hmm. thought we were going to have a late-night start. But it never actually started that one. This game started well-knowing. I mean, everybody knew. There's like a Mets weather Twitter account. I think it's like at WXMets, and I'll give them a shout-out because they're pretty cash money. Mm-hmm. But they were like, I just don't know how this game's going to start. Like, it is going to downpour from 7 to 8 at the absolute minimum. And for some reason, everybody but the Mets knew this. Yeah, and like the other irony of it was that after Carrasco had a rough first inning, Juan Soto just hit a beautiful, gorgeous opposite field home run. The type of home run that only the best players in baseball can hit. We were smoking the ball left and right all over the outfield, and the wind and the rain was just knocking it down repeatedly. And it was just... Coming off of the weekend series against the Phillies, that was a really, really tough way to start this ser- this uh, three-game set with the Nats. It was an absolute gut punch. I didn't expect mm-hmm. Carlos Carrasco to get hit that hard at the beginning, and that was really all we saw of him because, of mm-hmm. course, this eight game ends up getting postponed. 
Moved to the next day for a... Suspended, not postponed. Yes, suspended to the next day for a doubleheader, where Rich Hill now comes in in relief, which is weird to say because it felt like he just started the game. Yeah. But he came on in relief, and yeah, he shouldn't have. He no, definitely shouldn't have. Probably not. He asked for the ball, which like I fucking love that energy. I love that attitude. And he was pitching the whole day. Like he really wanted to be out there. Like he kind of wanted to be like Rich Hill to stop her. But there was just no reason for Rich Hill to pitch on short rest. He's been pitching basically on seven days rest his entire tenure with the Mets, the three weeks it's been. And he decided to come out on four days of rest. And he had even less than he usually has, which leaves him with not very much. Well, I feel like even when he was going well with the Dodgers, like he would only throw five innings every five or six days. Like he wasn't a guy who's a short rest kind of dude he just doesn't have the stuff he needs to be as sharp as possible he wasn't but like you said I did love the attitude because that's something that the Mets need badly right now with someone who's like trying to step up pick up the team here bring a little energy and you saw it even when I think McNeil made like that weird player or there was some weird play and he almost McNeil botched a ground ball and Rich Hill went fuck at the top of yeah. his lungs yeah which like I think is okay I normally don't like pitchers showing up players but I don't think it really was a showing up of McNeil there. I think that was more of just a frustration that, like, he couldn't get out of the jam. Yeah, I wouldn't say that he showed him up. I think he was actually just mad. He did get the next batter. Everything was all good and well. But I think he was just more, like, expressing frustration. I'm sure Jeff McNeil was frustrated as well. He had a pretty brutal series defensively, but we'll talk about all that later. Also, it was pretty funny that Rich Hill tried to drop a drag bunt. Yeah. How many times is he going to come up to the plate? With men in scoring position. Just pitchers in general, but Rich Hill, I feel Every like, time. has the least amount of chance to get a hit out of any Mets pitcher. <laughs> out of any pitcher in baseball, I'd probably say. Even some relievers, I think, have a much better shot than Rich Hill. I'd rather send Luis Rojas up there. Oh, that's not even a question, of course. He was <laughs> he was hustling in that drag bunt. Yes, he ran it out. He yeah. will give all his effort. That effort's just that of a 43-year-old man. Yeah, but he was he was moving and grooving. Like, and he there were some strides. Like, Rich Hill has a long legs. Like, he's a lanky dude, even though he's kind of, like, chubbier than he is lanky at this point in his career. But he was he was busting. I give Rich Hill all the credit in the world. He didn't really perform super great, but he's a gamer, and you can never take that away from him. Can't take it away from him, but in the same regards, did put us in quite a hole. But luckily, the Mets hit. Mm-hmm. The Mets were swinging the bat mm-hmm. well, and they kept fighting back. It was 4-1 after, what, the second, I believe yes. it was, or the Rich third? Rich Hill's first inning, which was the second. Even stupider than actually starting the game on Tuesday night was that we started the second inning and we got through one batter and Carrasco let him on. I believe it was a walk. I think he just or a hit. I don't recall exactly. But when we started a suspended game yesterday, there was a man on first, nobody out for Rich Hill. Yeah, and he gave up like a quasi-double. Dom misplayed it terribly in mm-hmm. left field, which we've been talking about. Dom's outfield defense is no. not great, despite what people on Mets Twitter think. It's just not good. Yeah, it's not good at and all. And it showed there. So it put us in a 4-1 hole, but the team battled back 4-4 in the third. Nimmo is just... He's so good. He's probably the best offensive player on this team, I think. I wouldn't say the best at all. You're forgetting the, the chubby guy in the middle of the order. But I think, like, in terms of how he's, like, he's on base, he's he's constantly on. This offense, I should say, goes through him. He's not the yeah, best. Yeah. He might be the most important. Yeah, I think he's probably the catalyst, but he's definitely not the best run producer. Yeah, no, no. yeah. I would say the most important. I revise what I best said. Best all-around hitter. Yes. But huge double from him. Mm-hmm. Then McNeil, who's gone back to like his little base knock kind of style that he was from what we knew when Jeff McNeil came up. Yeah. That was great. And then JD, big two-out double mm-hmm. when we called JD out for maybe not being as healthy as we thought, not being able to hit a 91-mile-an-hour fastball, mm-hmm. looked a lot better this series, and he got started in game one with that two-out double. Definitely. Everything that JD did wrong in the last week, he just corrected in a three-day stretch. Like All of the things we were talking about, about his hand being bad, he couldn't hit fastballs. That was all put very well behind him. It makes me more, even more so question what was going wrong in Philadelphia. 
Yeah, it's just, he maybe just wasn't feeling great. Like, we saw that, remember, with Pete back in uh, Tampa when he played there? Yeah. And it was like, maybe he just wanted to play and he wasn't a fully, like, healthy. That could be what happened with J.D. Davis. But luckily for us, he's been hitting the ball better. Mm -hmm. And then Dick Mountain came back out and just gave up a couple in the fifth. He just couldn't really have a clean inning pretty much this entire game. No, he's pitched on four days rest, and he only throws 90 miles an hour when he does with only a fastball and the curveball. Like, I, I know this Nationals lineup is like a glory, not even a glorified triple-A lineup. This is a triple-A lineup that includes Juan Soto and Josh Bell, but he still just really couldn't do anything. But even after he gave up two runs and Familia let an inherited runner score, we got one immediately right back. And it just, again, made you feel like this team was really ready to win a game. It was Conforto who actually got the big hit. Which is huge. He got a couple hits this series. I'm still not feeling great about the swings he's putting on the balls, per se. I still think it looks pretty ugly. He hit a great one today. But he's hitting the ball better. He's definitely hitting the ball better. Still not for really any power, by any means. Again, but... hit the long double today. Top of the wall. Yeah. There wasn't that bat later in the game, which I'm just going to talk about it because I think it was the fifth inning. It was the at-bat after he hit the double. Someone threw him two fat pitches like right down the middle, and he fouled both of them like down the um the left field line. I was just like, I thought you were there, but you're so clearly still not, but there's something. There's at least something happening. Yeah, maybe he's starting to heat up a little bit here. Got started in game one for us, too. And then Pete, there we go, our best offensive player. There he is, the polar bear himself. Big double in the seventh inning. It was huge for us. Really, really big hit by Pete. He's just been big this entire series, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize to him now. We called Pete out for his BS, his Mm -hmm. Gary Vaynerchuk crap, and I still believe it was. Yeah. But Pete did step up. Pete did perform. He talked the talk, and then he wound up walking the walk, which is all we can really ask for as fans. Yeah, no, he, like, as much as cheesy as it was, whatever it was, it worked. He stepped up this series for us. He'd been huge. Then we have the eighth inning, and the eighth was crazy. The eighth was nuts. J.D. Davis, another double, Mm because J.D. Davis is just, he's back, which is so strange to say after what we just saw last week. Uh, And then VR with the bunt. So you're going to have to kind of take this one over a little bit, because I was hearing this inning through the telephone with my dad, the telephone, what am I, 100? <laughs> through my phone with my dad. I was on the phone moving my car to park for alternate side parking. And I was like, we're staying on because they're scoring runs and a lot of crazy stuff happened. VR bunted and there was an error? Yeah, well, when JT hit the leadoff double, it was kind of unclear whether Jonathan VR was bunting as a sacrifice or for a hit. But he did drop one down and someone charged... I don't even remember. I was watching this while also working, so I was like, kind of. Wasn't going, it the pitcher? I think it was Thompson. It might have been, Thompson. I was going back and forth with my eyes, but whoever it was just made a horrific throw up the line, and it allowed an inning that possibly the Mets were trying to just keep this game tied balloon into an inning where we were able to take the lead because with the error, Jonathan Villar got in the scoring position. I believe there was another hit. He somehow got to third, and then Brand McCann. McCann, yes, McCann had a hit, and then Brand Drury just hit the ball in the right spot, and we got a run. Which, by the way, that bunt for VR, just from a game plan perspective, absolutely hate it. Yeah, that, yeah, that was the point I was trying to make. I don't think I finished it because I was trying to remember at the same time. My brain couldn't work in both those ways at once. I don't know, actually, if he was bunting for a sacrifice. I think he just might have been actually bunting to get on base. Because Jonathan VR does that. He's the wild card. He's the crazy horse. Caballero loco, as we say all the time. As we haven't said that in a while, actually. Probably since, not since May. Yeah, no, haven't said it in a long yeah, time. Yeah, for all the new listeners that we got, we haven't said it in a while. But he is. He's a crazy cowboy. And then Brandon Drury. Yeah, guy just doesn't get out. He's taking over a little bit of the Wilmer Flores role, I feel like, where he's just he's getting these big hits late in the game, and he crushes left-handed pitching. And as a pinch hitter. Yes, and as a pinch Always hitter. Always as a pinch hitter. So, without Brandon Drury, we don't get ahead in this game. No. And then, luckily for us, Diaz comes in, one, two, three, shuts the door, mm-hmm. dominates Juan Soto, makes him look like a AAA hitter to match this AAA Nats lineup. And the Mets win. He blew smoke by Juan Soto. That was like vintage. And that slider Diaz. too. Yeah. 
It was a very strong inning for Diaz. It was a very comfortable way to win, even with a one-run lead with Juan Soto at the plate. Ronnie mentioned it today. I don't know how this guy continues to come up in the last inning of games against the Nationals. Every single time. Every single time. You cannot get out of a game against the Nats without Juan Soto having a chance. And it's not like he has these great hitters in front of him that like should be extending the game to get to Juan Soto. He just is always due up. Yes. I don't know how it happens. He's a pain in our side, and he is so damn good. Can the Nationals also trade him, too? Did you see his Instagram post this week? Yeah, sure did. That was interesting for you Mets fans if you aren't following Juan Soto on Instagram, which is understandable. He posted a picture of him at home plate at City Field with like the caption, like uh, something like, I love the city, blah, blah. And then said, like, hashtag future, hashtag New York. I think he put hashtag Queens. Hashtag, I was like, oh, hashtag Big Apple. That's what it was, Big Apple. I'm like, Juan, you want to come to the Big Apple, yeah. man? Well, I'll pay you all the money, and we will load up the Brinks trucks for I think you. It might have been a double entendre because the Big Apple is New York City, but he was staring at center field when he made the post. We all know there's an apple right out there. Cryptic. I like it. If Juan Soto wants to be a Mets, I will find a place for him. I'll I'll give Steve Cohen all the money he needs. We play this team again in two weeks, and I'm just feeling that Juan Soto is due for the phantom injury that knocks him out for the rest of the year. A quad or a shoulder, a hamstring, an ankle, something's going to happen. Juan Soto cannot continue hitting amongst this lineup. Do we really want that? Of course. Why would not? Andrew Stevenson's going to play more, and he just absolutely owns us. Taking Andrew Stevenson out. Never have and never will. Oh, my God. But the real story in game one was the Mets offense finally waking up as we've said seven or eight times this season, but they were just smoking the ball left and right. The Mets had 14 hard-hit balls in this game, which is an astronomical amount for nine innings of baseball. Pete and Dom had three each. All three of Pete's were over 107 miles an hour. Nimmo, McNeil, and JD each had two. As a team, 11 of our 14 hard-hit balls were over 100 miles an hour, and this is what it's supposed to fucking look like against the Washington Nationals right now. This is it. Joe Ross, this is what you should do with Joe Ross. You should annihilate the guy, eviscerate him. Joe Ross and... Klaba Slits and, and Andres Machado, the names that they pull out on this bullpen are not good. Klaba Slits didn't even look that bad. He just he gets the yips a little bit. Yeah, I guess. But Dom bailed him out in that game anyway. It was but. just nice to see frozen ropes being hit in every single direction for three hours. Hadn't, hasn't been like that in weeks. The Mets hitters looked comfortable for the first time in a very long time. It was nice to see that they were like, hey, there they are. There's the guys that we thought we were going to have all year long. And it's great to play one of the worst teams in baseball and be able to do that to them. Yes, and it push us or put us in a good mood going into game two for the doubleheader mm-hmm. um biblical storm came out of nowhere <laughs> you i like when you try to read my notes sometimes because like i know yeah. <laughs> and i'm caught off guard i didn't expect to see biblical storm Dude, in here the storm on wednesday night was biblical and it literally came out of nowhere there was no op- very opposite of the rainstorm on tuesday where it was projected for days in advance there was like a 10 percent chance of rain the entire day and all of a sudden these horrifying rain clouds like swept over New York City. I had dinner plans with friends in Manhattan. I had no conception it was going to rain. I was walking to the train station from my apartment in Brooklyn and a lightning bolt just careened down from the sky. I was like, oh my God. I was like, I don't have a coat. It was like too hot to even bring a coat. And it was really rained like hell for two hours. We had a dinner reservation. It got pushed back because all the tables inside had just canceled those reservations. We were standing under a hotel awning for like a half an hour. Oh my God. (laughs) It was kind of funny. Yeah. I was like, I was reading this and I was like, wait, today was the doubleheader. Like what? What are you talking about? I'm so confused. But yeah, the rain, I completely forgot. I just blanked out after that. It was supposed to be a doubleheader. Then they saw the clouds like, we can't do this again. No, we're not doing this again, which is why we had the doubleheader today. I felt bad though, because there were a lot of Mets fans who went to the ballpark for just the night game. 
or at least towards the end of the suspended game, just because it's hard to get to a game for three, four o'clock sometimes. People work, you know, people have plans, people have lives. And I feel like this has been botched so many times this year by the Mets, but this one wasn't their fault. Still, it just sucks with people like spend their hard-earned money, pull, go to the ballpark, venture out to flushing for a night that won't even happen. Yeah, no, that's a pretty awful feeling. Not everyone has the luxury of driving back 10 minutes like me, so as a killer for a or lot of people. just taking a 30-minute subway like me. Like, that's nice. With no family that I have to even cater to or be aware of at all. No, it's, it's nice being 25, right? Yeah. But anyway, we got this game then pushed to Thursday for another doubleheader. Mm-hmm. So technically the Mets were slotted to play just normal games this series. And we're like, hey, how about almost two doubleheaders, basically? And Stroman and Nimmo carried us in game one. Stroman was fantastic on the mound. Mm-hmm. Nimmo always great at the plate and was even better probably one of his better offensive games of the year in game two absolutely these two literally just put us on their backs Nimmo had all four RBIs in this game he had a massive three-run home run the second inning when if you're in a seven inning game you can get a three-run home run early it just feels like wow we are completely in control of this any lead in the seven inning game feels like a whole different version of baseball but the only reason that home run was able to happen because of savvy Marcus Stroman anti anti-dh argument right here made one of the better baseball plays I've seen this year dropping a drag bunt with two outs and VR stranded on first base after a leadoff single and he hoofed it out and it got Brandon Nemo up with two men on, and it really felt like old-school baseball. It was magical for a moment there. Yeah, if you, if you love bunting and you love pitchers hitting, you uh, got a hard-on for that one. <laughs> for me, I would have rather seen an actual major league hitter in the lineup, but hey, it worked out, so I'm not going to complain. I'll let it happen because it went our way. I'm a fair-weather fan with the DH. When it works, it works for me, and when it doesn't, I get mad. But anyway, huge home run for Nemo, and he got another RBI single in the fourth, which gave us some insurance, which we saw would come in handy a little bit, too. Different game. This one didn't come in handy in this one. Well, it almost did. It almost Stroman, did. Okay, yeah. Stroman scared us a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough. But, yeah, enough. I'm kind of all over the place here with game two. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I want to talk about how bad Sean Nolan is and how the yeah. Mets were smacking him around because it was refreshing to see eight hits in three innings. Definitely. You don't see that often. Even though it was only three runs at the time, that all came on one home run that followed a bloop single and a drag bunt. But still, just nice seeing hits. Nice seeing hits. Frozen ropes. Love frozen ropes. They looked very comfortable again at the plate in game two. It was also off of Sean Nolan, who, I don't know, Sean Nolan sounds like a news anchor in, in Idaho. We made him look like the pitcher that he is, and that's good to say because the Mets have been making Braxton Garrett and Matt Moore uh, Matt Moore look like studs this year. So, hey, we hit Sean Nolan, as you should, but for this team, that's a big deal. Yeah, very big deal. And the bigger deal in this game was Marcus Stroman having one of his, I don't want to say his best or most impressive performance of the seasons, but his most necessary performances of the season because when we had an early lead against the nationals you just really don't want to give them even a second to breathe and marcus roma did an incredible job of keeping them not only off the board but off of the base paths in most of the innings that we played it was easy inning after easy inning for marcus early he had a very good distribution of his of his four main pitches this game between the sinker the cutter the slider and the splitter the cutter was the second most thrown pitch in back-to-back starts after he didn't really use it that much in may or june he kind of has been tipping up a little bit since july end of july August as he was using it a lot in April that's something to keep an eye on I'm also just kind of skeptical on where the line is drawn between sliders and cutters on baseball savant so we could just be throwing a shit ton of sliders which would also be like a fantastic advancement in Marcus Stroman's repertoire I'd love if he became like a 60% slider guy like we saw Cookie do two starts ago and all of those off speeds had multiple whiffs I mean all actually all the pitches had multiple whiffs but all the off speeds had more than multiple slider had five on nine swings splitter had three on four swings 
And overall, it was the third highest whiff rate from Stroman in a singular start all season. So it was a very, very positive development from a guy we were worried about less than a month ago. No, he was so back. And it's crazy because he was so dominant for those first five. And then the sixth inning came around. And just like that, Mets fans tensed up a little bit here. Got real tight. Stroman gave up a couple hits here and there, mm-hmm. and we had to bring in Aaron Loop to face Juan Soto because, of course, yeah. Juan Soto comes up in a big situation As in a always. 4-1 game. And Juan Soto might have had one of the best at-bats I can remember in a long time, down 0-2. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the first called strike was not a strike at all. It was a horrendous call. Thank God we got that strike because getting a strike on Juan Soto changes everything. He'll, like, will strategize his whole at-bat around just how it begins. Like, you kind of, I don't want to say he gets defensive because he doesn't, but he also does because he's able to be defensive while also having power, which is something that I don't know who else in the whole world could really do. It's not fair. No, but you could just see the whole vibe switch, and it kind of put loop in the driver's seat, which was necessary to even walk Juan Soto, which I thought they should have done from the start. Yeah, I thought so too, yeah. And they ended up walking him anyway from 0-2, which is just a testament to his ability and his plate discipline, but that was just so stressful. And then luckily, we got out of it from Josh Bell instigating one of the wildest double plays I've ever seen in my life. Dude, first off, thank you, Josh Bell, for, like, existing, because that guy's just, like, so not very good. I think you like him a little bit more. I'm just like, that guy stinks. A little bit more. He's okay. He's just, he, like, doesn't even really hit the ball that hard, I feel like. But anyway, regardless, he hit a ball up the middle that I'm like, oh, yeah, the shift, we're good. McNeil gets it. I'm like, oh, easy. Step on second, throw to first. McNeil decides to make a toss, which was nuts. That was the first crazy thing here. Jonathan VR came from out of the camera frame. To grab the ball, take three steps, step on the bag, and then just throw a nice back shoulder pass to Pete Alonso over the safety in the back of the end zone. I was like, I was screaming at my television watching it. And he had like a little pirouette from a Josh Bell sliding out of the way to tag him right in the shoulder. And then like barely even got him too. There was a lot of, no, 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 what, no, like that happening in that moment. And when Pete made the tag, I was like, oh my God, I fucking hate this team so much. Like, it's never easy. Why, why can't it just be easy? And then, I mean, it was easy after that. The Diaz was lights out again in the ninth. Shut the or, door. I guess the seventh, technically. Seventh. Shut the door and the Mets win. Mm-hmm. We take the series, which is something that we 100% had to do. But that left us with a little more work to do because we had to sweep now. We had to sweep. Phillies won one game against the Dodgers, so Mm -hmm. if we really want to make some ground up here, a sweep is what we had to do. And game three, we went right back at it. No punt lineup. Amazing. We played a competent team. It's interesting that you're talking about the Phillies instead of the first place Atlanta Braves. Well, yeah, I guess them too. No no punt lineup in the second game of a doubleheader was such a a breath of fresh air. First time I feel like we've done it all season long, just to see Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonso and J.D. Davis and Jonathan Villar, who is crazily, shockingly, one of the most important players who's been on this team this season, all to be back in the lineup. It was very clear the Mets' attitude has shifted over the past two weeks. Question for you. What? You think Luis Rojas has uh, got a little more involvement in the lineup now, or you think it's still Sandy? I think that it's probably an entire organizational shift into being like, we can't take it easy anymore. We don't care. If something goes wrong, the season's just over. You kind of just have to play like kind of pushed up against the wall at this point. And luckily we did because we needed all hands on deck to actually win this game. This one was stressful. Now, Trevor Williams made his first start as a New York Met. And through the first three, he was actually really good. Super efficient. I was surprised with how well he pitched. I mean, he pitched fine. Like, there was nothing effective about it. Like, he in his entire outing, he only had two whiffs to go along with two walks and two strikeouts, so it was a big deuces game for Trevor Williams. And the Nationals just, like, swinging a lot because Trevor Williams throws a lot of not-scary pitches generally near the plate. Like, he did a good job of finding the shadow, something that we've spoken about a lot this year with Mets hitters, but Trevor Williams kind of lived in that periphery area around the strike zone. It turned out to be great because you kind of get a guy to swing, but he can't 
hit the ball as hard as he would like. I feel like to explain Trevor Williams, this sums it up best. I texted you. I'm like, after three, he just got his first strikeout as a New York Met. Like, he just doesn't have that kind of stuff, but he was very effective. 100%. And in those first three innings that we talked about being so efficient, Nationals only had three hard hit balls. So that's like, that's fine for Trevor Williams, especially the way the Mets have shifted. I also thought it was funny how Trevor Williams had 27 pitches in three innings and Rich Hill had 74. And I think that they said that Trevor Williams in those three was the fewest amount a Mets pitcher has had in three innings. And that 74 by Rich Hill was the most a Mets pitcher has had in three innings. That's cool. It's a great juxtaposition from two guys who are like basically exactly the same. Yin and yang. <laughs> one's just a righty and one's a lefty. Uh, it doesn't tra- isn't Trevor Williams tatted? Am I thinking of the wrong guy? I don't know why. I feel like you're feeling a Stephen Brault. I could be thinking of Stephen Brawl. That makes sense. That guy definitely is tatted. And Trevor Williams was a former pirate. Yeah, I mean, of course Trevor Williams was a former pirate. Did you hear the anecdote they told about Trevor Williams' dad on the broadcast today? No, but I think I know the story, but tell it again for those who don't. Trevor Williams grew up in the San Diego area, but he grew up a Cubs fan because his dad came from Chicago. And his dad was uh, adolescent at, when Ernie Banks was playing for the Cubs and actually played hooky to head to Wrigley Field for a day game. The game in which Ernie Banks hit his 500th home run. That's pretty sick. That's a baseball family. That's a baseball family. Yeah, because I remember when Trevor Williams signed with the Cubs this offseason, or whenever they got him, it was like a big deal. He was like, I'm, I'm, I'm home. As big of a deal as Trevor Williams signing with the Cubs could possibly be. Well, not for the Cubs team, for Trevor Williams and his family. That's where I meant. Yeah, yeah. good for them. He actually threw like five or six perfect endings in his first game with the Cubs. And he pitched well against the Mets, too, when we faced him. That's probably why we traded for him. Like, oh, that guy's a good pitcher right there. Uh, because he can go to the minor leagues, which he will probably next week. That's why we traded for him. Don't get it twisted. Gave us five fine innings. Four and, four and a third. Yeah. There was a little bit of confusion with him coming out of the game because that was the inning that we had the Conforto JD back-to-back doubles. And it looked like we were going to have a big inning. So Lugo started warming up in the bullpen. And then just the way the inning worked out, because I think that VR was on... Yeah, VR was on base and McCann hit the Taylor made double play. Luis Garcia threw the ball just to the moon. He tried his best Jonathan VR impersonation and couldn't pull it off. <laughs> it was a crazy <laughs> throw. I just like I was like thinking about it, I was listening, and I was like, oh yeah, that throw is nuts. nuts. Like it was almost as if he tried to throw it yeah. like completely out of play. He's also just not a shortstop, so I understand. Like but it turns out there just to be a man on first and one out with Trevor Williams coming up. So now it's like a bunt situation. He was cruising along, so you might as well leave him out there. But Luis Rojas should have trusted his instincts because Trevor Williams was unfit to pitch that fifth inning. And it showed. Luckily, though, Seth Lugo looked sharp for the first time in actual weeks and cleaned up the mess very efficiently. He looked very good. Uh, I don't know if he's still back, but he looked good, and that's a very promising sign. I think he might be pretty back because Gelbsy shared a great little nugget of information that Lugo, I guess, told him directly or that he found out in the clubhouse. Basically, Seth Lugo thinks that he'd been overthrowing, but not overthrowing as in like too much effort with his arm because Seth Lugo has a crazy shoulder, crazy elbow. The spin rates are off the charts. Highest RPMs of any curveball in baseball. But he was basically using too much legs and that was causing him to get too into all of his pitches, get too far on top of all of them. And that's why he wasn't really as able to locate over the last few weeks. And Ronnie actually corroborated and said that he's gone through similar spells in his career. Of course, not to the same extent because he can't put the same kind of torque on a ball as Seth Lugo. But I thought it was interesting to hear that um, explanation, to actually to watch it play out and see Lugo much more effective than he'd been. Yeah, no, Ron was cash money this series. Like, he, all year long, has been hitting the nail on the head with everything, but particularly this series, killed it in the booth. Ron and Gary crushed it today. It was such a pleasurable listen. Like, really off the charts. And I, I'm going to say something that might be a little sacrilege, but I kind of just like it when, it th- when this season, I kind of just like it when it's been these two out there. You know, I'm 
going to say something sacrilege here too. I agree. And yeah. I hate to say, cause I love Keith. Keith is the, the drunk uncle, you know, Yeah, when they have all three, it's still cool. But just the Keith and Gary, I feel like hasn't really been the bright chemistry this season. Keith isn't bringing a lot to the table anymore. It feels like specifically this year, it just feels like he's very distant from the game. And I feel like we've mentioned this in a couple episodes, but I feel like now listening to Gary and Ron, this series, and when you had Gary and Keith in a previous one, you can clearly tell that there is a huge difference when those two work together. Keith is a great third guy. Mm-hmm. As a number two, he just doesn't have that insight that Ron gives. But I think Keith still has the potential to have that insight when he's allowed to be like on the field and with the guys again. Like I feel like Keith can pull a lot of personal things. I'm not saying that Ronnie can't pull them, but that's kind of Keith's MO. Like he is boots on the ground, talks to guys, learns things. And guys will tell Keith things. He's, he's, he's fucking Keith Hernandez, as Jerry Seinfeld said. Keith Hernandez. He's Keith Hernandez. Like... He is, but when he can't really do that, Keith is not the kind of guy who's going to be able to glean very much just from statistics and just from like watching and learning and researching. He'll still give his great demonstrations and talk about infield defense and talk about protecting the plate, but Ronnie has kind of taken that next step in baseball analysis where he can kind of just do it all. He's one of the best in the business. Yeah, he's starting to get analytically sound too, which is like nice because the Mets booth needs it a little bit every once in a while. Need to get a little smarter with the stats. They mentioned it this game another time, talked about Conforto's Woba versus ex-Woba, which I was like, huh, can't believe that. No, it was nice. It was a really good series from a commentary perspective, Mm -hmm. along with a good series from play perspective. Nats also left in the awful pitcher that is Eric Fetty for way too long, but... I also guess, like, who else are they really going to pitch? They no. just don't have arms. They kind of, this is the kind of Eric Fetty's last shot where they just have to learn. Like, are you a guy who can actually be a 4-5 or five in this rotation, or do we just have to banish you to the bullpen and, until until your arbitration runs out? Well, this is a thing that this Nationals team is going to do a lot of this year, and you saw it, I think, in Game 2. Riley Adams had an at-bat mm-hmm. late in the game with an opportunity for, like, a legitimate hit, and they didn't go Ryan Zimmerman or Gerardo Parra off the bench where anybody with a brain would have, especially because you have the catcher on the bench. Mm -hmm. but the Nats want to see what their guys have because they're trying to figure out basically who's going to be here and who's not. And I think that's the Fetty situation too. Yeah, definitely. Feet to the fire. If Eric Fetty can't be a starting pitcher, we have two months to figure it out. So let's just do it. But it was great because this was the rally we just talked about five minutes ago. We're Conforto smoked a double. Felt like old times. JD followed up with the same thing. Luis Garcia, crazy person throw. Trevor Williams bunt. Didn't get the neck of the run. Then the implosion. We're going time traveling here. Back in time. Back and forward. Yes. We're feeling good. We're feeling good. Except for the last inning. (laughs) You missed the insurance. Oh, VR's home run. Yes. That was so monumental. Little did we know. Yeah, saved the game. Saved the game because Trevor May was bad. Yeah, he was really bad. He's been so good for weeks, too. So, like, I don't want to put this on him. He has been literally unhittable since that awful stretch he had in June. The whole month of July and so far in August. The guy's been one of the best relievers in baseball, statistically. Yeah, no, he's been good. And this is going to build into what I wanted to say about in high leverage, so I'm going to say high leverage, I think, classifies as one and two run games where, like, a tying runs at the plate or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He's been great in games where there's low leverage. So that's with, like, with a deficit or when there's a big lead. Trevor May is great. These little three-run games here. Trevor May has been bad, and that didn't even include today. I don't know what it is with Mets pitchers, but we seem to have scenarios for every single guy uh, where they forget how to be the guy they are. Definitely. And that's also just fun with sample sizes because I'm sure that Trevor May has been in many more high leverage games and low leverage games. Two medium leverage games come to mind with Trevor May. That is today, and that is the game in Philadelphia on opening day in April. So I don't know, but I do feel that Trevor May is a guy who pitches with a lot of emotion, and he really, really, almost as much as Diaz, needs to feel heat 
in order to be involved. So, yeah, maybe. But the medium leverage stat, that is a weird little uh, tidbit that you've brought here. Yeah, there's probably nothing to it, really. Again, like you said, the sample size is so small. But I want to find something, and that yeah. was interesting to me. The other issue here was that he did get into trouble, and Familia had to come in and clean it up. And he did get an out. He got that nice pop-up to the catcher, which yeah. was huge. Great. That, that, was, was that was a great play by McCann. Awesome play by McCann, which was quickly wiped away by an awful block job by him, yeah. where he just didn't get the hand down. He made a nice block on the first pitch of that at bat. He did. And then the second one came, and he just, I don't know if, it wasn't even like he was lazy getting to it. He went to do everything right. He just expected it to bounce higher, which is something that you never do as a catcher. Just bury it in the dirt. Get down. You can't let it go through the five hole. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, right through the wickets. It was, it seemed like it was a play that James McCann could have made if he weighed like 15 less pounds. Like yeah. if, the, if the frame was a little bit tighter, I feel like McCann could have just gotten on his knees and everything would have been okay. But this was awful foreshadowing because the allowed the run to score. Now it was 4-2. The tying run was on second base. And Met killer Andrew Stevenson steps to the plate. I fucking hate this guy. Oh, I was feeling okay at this too. I was like, okay, come on. We got this. Familia's got this. Andrew Stevenson. We have to get him out once. We have to. He was even a pest in game two. When he came up and got a hit for them. He was a pest in 2020. He's been a pest since he's come to the major leagues. And he's not even like the worst player. Like he hits the ball kind of hard and he's a good athlete. But he just hit the dinkiest ground ball in the entire world. And like Jeff McNeil is very clearly a step slow right now. Still nursing a hamstring injury. He's ripping the cover off the ball so he has to be out there. But he just couldn't get to like a ball that was hit like maybe 70-ish off the bat. And he just let it slip under his glove because he wanted to make an out rather than do the safe thing and just put his body in front of it and block it, like just like McCann should have done. McNeil running after that ball reminded me of like men's league when it's like a 50-year-old playing yeah, second base and they did like that little waddle and they like go to reach down like, ah, it's like too far. Like obviously he wants to get the ball. By no means is this like a an issue for Jeff McNeil, but you do have to get dirty there. And boy, did that ruin my day. It, the game two didn't matter. I was so hot just at the fact that we were even in this situation, it should have yeah. been an easy sweep. And after you made me sweat my balls off in game two in what should have been an easy game, I just sw- I was losing it in game three. I was like, how? How can't there just be one day where it's nice and easy for this team? Never. Game two was pretty easy. One by three. It wasn't really a stress. There was like a one rally that in the loop. fifth inning. You got it. Come yeah. on. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. VR gave me a heart attack. I don't think you understand how into this game I was in game two. When VR threw it, I was ready to just turn off my TV and go to bed. No, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it happened again in game three. But luckily, our boy, the man, the best power hitter on planet Earth, mm-hmm. Pete Alonzo, steps up to the plate. And hits a walk-off home run, and the Mets win. They get a sweep of the Washington Nationals, and every single Mets fan can just go, Yeah. Oh, thank God, because even though we still would have won the series, this sweep is so monumentally important to this team's rest of the season run here. Needed it badly. They just needed to save, I don't even like, the vibes, the energy. If they would have even lost one game to the Nationals, especially a gut-wrenching loss like this one, or game one getting down early with your best pitcher on the mound, maybe not best pitcher, Stroman might be the best pitcher at this point, all of the air would have been out. The little bit of air that was left in after the Phillies murdered you over the weekend would have been completely gone. You would have been, the season would have just been over. And for them to step up and like persevere and really work hard to win three games, like it sucks to work hard to beat the Nationals three times. Like the fact you couldn't just blow the Nationals out of the water is frustrating. That is upsetting. 
and it probably doesn't bode well for the next couple of weeks of Mets baseball. But just finding W's is fine. And this is actually kind of ironic because this is the conversations that we were having in May and June and earlier in July when the Mets were playing well but not playing well. So maybe we're just we're just stupid and we just got suckered into another couple weeks of this nonsense. But I feel okay right now about the Mets. I do. I'm definitely... Uh... Definitely down to get suckered into it. It was not oh, fun yeah. being miserable. I hate being a miserable Met fan. I've done that my entire life. You're a bitch. You tweeted a KFC today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I told you. I get sucked into it. I don't like it. I deleted it. I don't want to be Fell this negative for the bait, guy, you motherfucker. It's, it's so easy to get sucked into the negativity because what happened with the Phillies and Marlins was bad. And then this would have just been the cherry on top of like, here we are again. Yeah, this definitely would have been the castration of the New York Mets. Like, no doubt about it. But... We're supposed to be the positive guys. That's what we're here for. When, when when there's even like a possible opportunity to bring positive energy, good vibes only, we got to bring it. When I saw you tweet at KFC, I was outraged. I was furious. <laughs> I sent yeah, you like well, nine know, texts. Like, I was like, you can't do this shit. Fuck him. I know. I could. I could. I can't do it. I got to stop. It is what it is. I like KFC. He's a little negative. Shockingly, not the most negative Met fan by any means. He yeah. fell into the trap and he brought me in with him. I'm blaming him. Yeah. I saw it. I just shouldn't have been on Twitter. That's really what it was. I shouldn't have been on Twitter. Let's be positive. You're right. Keep the positivity up. So now, before we get going into our preview, of course, midweek episodes, we do our prospect report and we have been teasing for weeks that we have some prospect interviews coming up. So you're going to hear our prospect report and you're going to hear an interview from Jalen Palmer. I believe he's a top 10 prospect in the Mets organization playing for the Brooklyn Cyclones right now local kid so we're going to run the interview real quick and then we'll get going into the rest of the prospects around the league for the team and then the Dodgers preview so enjoy the interview with Jalen Palmer our first one of many coming all right guys so today we are here with Jalen Palmer of the Brooklyn Cyclones of course Mets prospect we're going to ask him a few questions let you guys get to know him a little bit more as a part of the podcast we're going to start introducing some of the prospects on here give them some interviews as a little bit of a part two after we talk about the games from earlier on in the week. So, Jalen, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. No problem, no problem. Recent call-up to Brooklyn. How you feeling? How does it feel to call up? It feels good to be back home, honestly. Yeah. It's much different than Florida. But I feel, like, I feel like I'm back at home, so it's my home ground. So I love it. Where, where are you from in Brooklyn? Canarsie, Brooklyn. And I, we saw on your um, bio that you used to go to high school up in Queens, Flushing. Holy Cross. Yeah, how was that commute? That's that <laughs> tough, but we got through it. So you've been playing a little bit of center field. And, you know, coming up, you were kind of like shortstop third baseman. What's that transition been like? What do you think has been the hardest adjustment for you, learning to play the outfield a little bit more? I mean, growing up, I was a center fielder. So just it's just me finding that feeling back to be out there on a consistent day basis was the hardest thing. But other than that, like, it's been a, a smooth transition, to be honest. What position do you feel most comfortable at? <sighs> it doesn't matter where I play. As long as I get by a bat. I like that answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So building on that, what do you, what's your favorite tool of yours as a player? As a player, it's just how versatile I am. Yeah. I can play anywhere. I can at the play. I feel like I can do damage. I I can hit for average. I can get on base, steal bases. I can also put some balls over the yard. Yeah. So I feel like I'm just a versatile guy. So yeah. it's my best tool. Being a versatile player and just talking about your game in general, do you have any like baseball idols you model your game after? Or you feel like you model your game after? that I model my game after. Or even just your favorite players growing up? My favorite players growing up was Barry Bonds and King Griffey. Like, both of them had, like, swag. Yeah. And that's, they, they, they bend themselves on the baseball field. So that's probably what I'm trying to do, just be myself. Be a little swaggy, but not nothing too crazy, but just yeah. I, I just feel good. So. so in terms of, like, playing the minors this year, you guys have had, like, interesting rules. You've had, like, the pickoff rule and I think automatic strike zone as yeah, well. We, we had the automatic yeah, strike zone in the well, Florida State League, yeah. So how do you feel about the automatic strike zone as a hitter? Do you like it? Do you feel like it's been accurate this year? It's, it's consistent. 
So that's, that's one thing. That, that's a positive. It's consistent. Uh, up and down is kind of borderline for us hitters, but side to side, it gave us a little bit a little bit of an advantage. But I, I don't mind it. It's, it's something that's consistent. That's all I care about. So I, I pretty much like it. As a, an athlete and a base dealer, did you like the uh, the pickoff rules down low way as well? It definitely gave me a, lo- <laughs> gave, definitely gave me a lot of confidence uh, beyond the base pass, but I, I did like it. Like 25 steals, right? 23. New York guy. We gotta ask you, what's the best slice of pizza that you can get in New York? New Park Pizza in, uh, I think that's Ozone. It's, no, that's not Ozone. It's Howard Beach. Howard Beach, Queens. Yeah. Best pizza. I had it yesterday. Really? Yeah, I did. Are you, because obviously you're a New York guy, are you like staying with your family now? Or are, like, what's the whole deal with like, I mean, the living I, situation? I, I can't stay with my family if I want to, but I'm pretty much gonna stay with the, with the guys at the hotel. Yeah. I don't, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be home, home yet. Yeah. I still have a month and a half left to work. So I want to stay with the guys in the team so I can stay focused. So in St. Lucie, you got to play with Jacob DeGrom because he came down for a little bit. What was that experience like having possibly the best player in baseball be hanging out in the locker room? It was it was, it was crazy. It, just seeing that in person, especially I was at third base as well, so I'm center cut. It's just it's amazing that, to see that's actually real. It's like, <laughs> instead of seeing it on TV, like I'm seeing it with my own eyes. But that, that's, that was a... a Traumatic experience. Traumatic. Traumatic. That was, that was pretty. That was pretty cool to have. Did you pick his brain? Did you ask him any interesting questions? Nah, nah, nah I guess I just let him work. Just let him work. Do what he do. I don't want to. I don't want to do anything crazy. And the other um, Mets come down to St. Louis this year in rehab assignments. The whole team was hurt. Seth Lugo was there yeah. for an inning. Uh, Syndergaard was there for. Probably he's with, he's with us the most, honestly. Yeah. But there's only those two guys. So you got your first baseball card this year. You got some Bowman cards out there. Have you been able to pick any up? Like. What's it like to be a player and get your own card? Does it feel like you're almost like like ah oh, damn this is this is sick? It's a sick it's, it's a sick experience honestly, but like it didn't really hit me until like my like friends and family was actually like buying these cards and like yeah. showing me oh I got you we got your baseball card, I got your baseball card and it's actually signed. So that that's that whole that was that was a dope moment honestly. All right, so we're gonna wrap it up here. Thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Um, go ahead and plug your social media for everybody to give you a follow, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you got. Instagram, Twitter at ucjp9. That's pretty much it. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for being on, Jalen Palmer, player for the Brooklyn Cyclones. Make sure you guys follow him and uh, check us out on the next episode. So yeah, our first ever interview on Mets Up Podcast. Technically, Jalen Palmer is our first guest. Yes. Because that's our first ever interview on here. First time you've ever heard anyone else's voice besides me and James. Mm -hmm. Short interview, for sure. But it was our first one that we did. We didn't want to hold guys too long. I thought it was good. It's really cool to interview a local kid who's also a part of the Mets. And it seemed like he's a pretty talented young player. Definitely. It's also just fun talking to him because he's a very like congenial guy. Like Especially if you guys follow him on Twitter, Instagram now, you see JP9. He seems just like a really fun, like cool, down-to-earth dude. And that definitely shown through just from us hanging out with him in the interview we just shared with all you guys. Yes, and that will be one of our only uh, English interviews coming at you. The next two are going to be Ronnie Mauricio and Francisco Alvarez in that order. So keep an eye out for those coming in the next few prospect reports during the midweek. Mm-hmm. Speaking of our friends, Ronnie and Francisco Alvarez, because I'm going to call them our friends now. I'm doing that. Oh, these are our friends, yeah. Friends of the podcast, friends of Mark and James. Francisco Alvarez is hitting, boy. He's hitting. He's looking good. This guy's really fucking good. Francisco Alvarez, I don't want to say he struggled in his first couple weeks in Brooklyn, but there was definitely an adjustment that had to be made. And he's never been a guy who really had that much power at any of the levels he's gone to. He always just had like such a command of the strike zone, such a magnificent hit tool. But the power has come in heaps since he came to Brooklyn. He has six home runs and 21 RBIs in his last 17 games. Just tearing 
the absolute cover off the ball. He is striking out more. So one of the main strengths that people have pulled from Francisco has waned a little bit. He's striking out 25% of the time over that same 17-game stretch. But to have mammoth power, that is completely worth it, especially when there's an adjustment, one, to better pitching, and two, to no longer having robot umpires because the guy seems to have just like a mastery of the strike zone. And I want to ask you, Mark, how much longer do you think our friend even has with the Brooklyn Cyclones now? I think by the time that we do make our Binghamton trip at some point, which I think is going to happen this year, Francisco Alvarez will be there. I can't imagine he's down in single A or high A much longer just because we got to be aggressive with this guy. There's no reason to. If he's playing and he needs to go to that next level, we got to push the development forward. Mm -hmm. The quicker you can get this guy major league ready, the better that is for the Mets. And not just from like, like, oh yeah, that's obvious perspective. When you have these young guys who are able to play at like such a young age like that and you're spending no money on them, that's money you can spend elsewhere. If we can have Francisco Alvarez as a 23, 22-year-old catcher playing at the major league level, being a legitimate player, that saves us a shit ton of money that we can spend elsewhere. Or just the bat in the lineup, no matter what position he plays. Yeah, we just play him anywhere. He's good. Yeah. He can hit. Let's continue that progression on the way up there, because clearly, as we saw from watching him take BP, he just hits the ball different than everyone else on that high A team. Truthfully, and him and Ronnie, while their trajectory is probably a little bit different right now, like, those two are what is dragging this Brooklyn Cyclones team along. The Cyclones are not a very, like, strong roster top to bottom. They're actually one of the worst teams in the, the high A league that they play in. But those two tag-teamed for a beautiful walk-off victory last Sunday against the Hudson Valley Renegades, the Yankees' high A team, which is the best team in that league, by almost 15 entire games. They are so good. <laughs> but, like, that also speaks to kind of players that like have been here because still a lot of the guys in the minor system or the minor league system for the Mets is from the old regime and as we know the old regime not the brightest the Yankees ones they've got some good players down there and they also as we said the dudes coming off the bus are just a different size than our guys Hudson Valley Renegades looked like a professional football team and the Brooklyn Cyclones looked like a high A baseball team if you guys want to picture painted for you it was a little bit intimidating especially as two two slight young men like mark and i are yeah there was one big guy in the brooklyn cyclones who was his name bryce montas de ocas i'll never forget it because it's a crazy name to just be bryce and then have like yeah. a, a name with a little bit of flair to it he was like six foot eight like 260 i'm like hey that guy's too big and he pitches doesn't make any sense well the one other really big guy in the cyclones ronnie mauricio he was the hero in that game where cisco alvarez had the walk-off he hit a game-tying triple to give Francisco the opportunity to even drive him in to win the game. And that has been in the midst of a power surge that's been happening for Ronnie Mauricio just as much as has been happening all season. The guy has seven extra base hits in his last 15 games, including triples in back-to-back games, which even as he's adding this weight, the guy can still move. He's a freak athlete. He's slugging 451 in the season, which is all great, and there's tons to like, but he's still just struggling to actually hit the ball with consistency. He's not going to be moving as quickly as Francisco Alvarez. These two have met in the middle, and they're going to hug and probably say goodbye for a couple of years because they're just moving at different speeds, and that's okay. It takes guys much longer than others. Like That's it. Every single guy develops at their own pace. This thing is not linear, but there's still just so much to like about running Mauricio. And then I just want Mets fans, if you're looking at the stats on a regular basis, just be patient because we're going to drop the interview next week, and this is a guy who, for lack of a better term, is an absolute dog. He is a freak of nature physically. He wants to be here. He wants to win. He has like a New York City vibe and energy, and I'm very confident this guy moving forward. I really am. No, he's got confidence out the wazoo, that's for sure, which that's also a crazy saying I just pulled out, out the wazoo. Where, where's that coming from? I don't, even, I don't even know. I don't even know. Ronnie, I like him. Uh, like you said, it's going to be a little bit slow here. He might progress a little bit more with the guy that we interviewed, Jalen Palmer, 
who's having a bit of a rough go at high A ball, but this is something that has followed him throughout the minor leagues. He has been a high K rate guy. Swing and miss has been the issue, but the weird thing is that he still walks at an incredible rate. A ton. That might even just be an adjustment that he's made because he's such like a tremendous athlete just from being in the leadoff spot in the order. Just having that high of a walk rate kind of makes me think that he can't strike out this much is impossible because if you're this good at pitch recognition, you can't continue. So that's going to regress. And he's not moving anywhere the rest of the season unless he does some ridiculous shit. So let him get used to center field. Let him get used to the pitching in high A. Let him hang out with his friends and his family that he's known in Brooklyn all his life. And just let keep letting Jalen Palmer develop. He doesn't need to be on the fast track by any means. Francisco Alvarez, fast track him. Let's keep him going forward. Beatty and Vientos, some guys that, uh, again, getting a little, uh, little more hype here. He's looking pretty good, both of them. Yeah, Beatty, Brett Beatty struggled a tiny bit his first couple weeks in double A, which as we said, whenever you move up like that, it's going to be an adjustment, especially that jump from high A to double A. It's probably one of the most vast, besides moving from triple A to the major leagues. So you're going to face a whole different level of competition, even though Brett Beatty is 96 years old. So like that makes sense that he would be able to handle that. But he's finally started to heat up. He had a nine game hitting streak that was snapped on Wednesday. The K rate pretty much in line where he's been all along powers coming let this guy keep growing and growing and growing and growing and it'll come but the guy who really has made a move we've talked about him all year he's been very hot on twitter it's mark vientos this guy continues to absolutely hit the piss out of the ball he's one of the best hitters in double a even at just 21 years old he's on par with as i've said like a month ago last time we really did a deep prospect report riley green who's a, by known widely as a top 10 prospect in the game vientos He's had the real material change in his projection. His tool has jumped a whole grade, in my opinion. He's hitting 300 over his last 20 games, seven seven home runs, 22% strikeouts, 10% walks. Those are numbers that make me think that he could be a New York Met next season, be contributing at the major league level, and just having a K rate sit kind of in the low 30s, a place that a lot of major league hitters aren't successful at. A guy like Patrick Wisdom comes to mind. Of course, he's much older than Mark Vientos right now, but he was once a heralded prospect and a first-round pick. And he's turning in a great season at the dish with a 30% K rate. And I think that is Mark Vientos' future, something that's very possible. Vientos has been heating up as the weather has. I think that's something to note. Binghamton, it's a little cold in, at the mm-hmm. beginning of the year. He's starting to heat up now that it's getting warm. His swing has always been something that I've liked, but as you said, there have been some like hit tool consistency issues. He seems to have gotten those out of the water. He is something has clicked for him at the plate. He is locked in. And maybe even Beatty getting called up maybe woke him up a little bit too, I could see. Yeah, some vibes. Also, those two have both been mixing in at third base and left field and also DH. So it's going to be interesting to see maybe as Binghamton gets more into a stretch run. I think that team actually has a decent record. Who's playing where in games that they're intending to win? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if they're if they're just like only if they're only third base and DH in like the actual crunch time games, then maybe it's not legitimate. But if any of those guys can handle left field and do it in games that matter, I think it'll do wonders to their development. Which it would. And then on the pitching side, you've got three guys you want to talk about: JT Ginn. Mm-hmm. I think it's what Justin Lasco and Jose Budo. We mm-hmm. saw Lasco pitch in Brooklyn when we were at the game. We did. He looked good. He mixed, I think, three different pitches. He had a fastball. It's hard to tell because Brooklyn doesn't really have great amenities, but it seemed like he was throwing either a fastball or a sinker, a changeup, and either a slider or a curve. It all looked fine. And he's he's an older guy. He's 24 years old, pitching in high A, but he's hit a groove over the last month-ish. Going seven starts back, his 28% strikeout rate, which will play. We'll probably get him a call to Binghamton sometime soon. A guy who has gotten a call to Binghamton, who I mentioned about a month or a month and a half ago, Jose Budo. This guy's turning into a piece. He's someone who 
you're going to start seeing a lot in the Mets' top 10 prospect reports. A guy who was already in the top 200 overall prospects on Fangraphs. He had a, t- a little bit of a rough patch his first two starts with A Binghamton, but since he's thrown 12 innings of scoreless ball in two starts, 12 strikeouts, six hits, and one walk, he's showing off a repertoire that probably will play in the major leagues at some point in the future. A 9K per nine with a walk rate that low? That's just like a solid back-end starter at the absolute worst. You will be able to find useful innings out of a guy like that. 100%. When I uh, talked about him for the first time, I said, this is a guy who the Mets hope could be a back-end guy. And the way he's pitched at double-A makes me think that that is incredibly possible. And we could maybe see him at triple-A before the season's out. And if something goes catastrophically wrong or we just want to get guys innings in September, Jose Budo might mix in, which would be which would be nice to see a new guy. And then for the last guy that we mentioned, JT Ginn, unfortunately got touched up a little bit. But again, JT Ginn, It's going to be a little bit with kitty gloves coming off the Tommy John surgery Mm -hmm. like that. Not rushing this guy by any means. We're excited about what we see out of JT Ginn because we know the quality of stuff that can be there. But this is going to happen through his progression throughout the minor leagues. He's going to get shelled just like every pitcher gets hit at some point. Absolutely. It was always going to take a few years with him coming off Tommy John surgery. So just the fact that he's pitching and he has the velocity that made us even want to draft him in the first place is a massive win. Massive win for us. And he was drafted by the Dodgers too originally, which... The Dodgers are interested. We should be interested, which segues perfectly. You see that? You guys see Mm -hmm. that segue right there? Segues perfectly into our series preview here against the Los Angeles Dodgers. A little homestand this weekend against the best team on paper in baseball. Mm -hmm. Boy, oh boy, is this going to be hard. I just want us to try. Let's just try to win a couple of games here. I'm going to be there. Friday night, tomorrow, or today, depending on when you guys listen, depending when I even edit it and get this thing out. But our best chance to win is probably going to be Friday because we have Tyler McGill facing off against Julio Urias, which is just a, a shiver-inspiring sentence that's saying facing Julio Urias is your best chance to win a game. And that is because on Saturday, we have a matchup of the Walkers, Taiwan Walker versus Walker Bueller. No Texas Rangers in sight. And Sunday Night Baseball, which is a nice little scheduling quirk from Major League Baseball and ESPN. Really love those guys. We got Carlos Carrasco against Max Scherzer. So let's just win on Friday and then hope for the best. Yeah, one game at a time. Stroman, after his press conference today, uh, Joel Sherman, the legend that is him, asked him a really stupid question. He's like, you guys uh, looking forward to the Giants and Dodgers thing? He's like, well, we have another game today, so I'd love to talk about what's happening right now. Like, we're not looking forward, which... It's the smart answer, but really the Mets do one game at a time. This yeah. Dodger series can be daunting. This stretch coming up could be nightmare scenario, mm-hmm. but that being said, it's not unwinnable. Teams still lose. The best teams in baseball still only win 66% of the games that they play. So the Mets have a chance. And a slant that was completely incorrect about the Mets all season. They can't be good teams. The Mets have a above 500 record against National League teams who are also above 500. So that those are the games against the Padres, some of the early games against the Phillies, the Braves, the uh, the Brewers won that series against the Brewers. The Mets are not like out of this series completely. This isn't, these aren't like 13 unwinnable games against the Dodgers, Giants, and the Dodgers, and then let's go, bitch. Got him. I got another one. Hey! In case you guys don't watch the YouTube videos, James kills a lot of flies in his room whenever we're recording <laughs> by Mr. Miyagi oh, like God. catching them. Got blow in uh, my hand. Yeah, that one was a thick one. So if you're watching the YouTube video, you will see James literally just to smack a fly out of thin air, which is pretty impressive. I'm not going to lie. It was a mosquito. We just have, there's a very imperfect amount of space between the wall units in my apartment and the outside world. And I have a backyard, which in Brooklyn, it's a pretty cool thing. So there's a lot of mosquitoes back there because it's trees and grass and shade. It's moisture, you know? So I get a mosquito about once a night. So I, it's always an activity for me to make sure I can find him and kill him. Oh my God, it's another one. There's I, another one. I missed that one. Right, I'll get him after. Yeah, you'll, you'll get them. I don't even remember where we were. <laughs> uh, we were talking about the Mets-Dodgers series and then the Giants. How, like, this stretch is going to be tough. 
but they can get through it. True. It's not impossible. It's just, it's not, not don't, impossible. don't think about it like it's over. And also, if Mets fans want something to look forward to, after these 13 games of hell against the Dodgers, Giants, Dodgers, and Giants, the Mets have 12 games of actual heaven against the Nationals, Marlins, Nationals, and Marlins. So as bad as this is going to be, even if the Mets wind up going 4-9 this series for my nightmare oh, scenario, I'm just saying, Please, I'm just saying, God, no. I'm just saying, that puts us to 500 record. Which would be shot. That'd be really scary. You're gonna have 12 games after that where you can conceivably go 10 and two, and that's not really impossible, especially with the news this week that Francisco Lindor is ramping up baseball activities. He took BP, which is huge for an oblique injury. Huge, huge that there was BP without a setback. Apparently that we've heard of yet, and also that Jacob Degrom is going to go in for an MRI. That's going to be either death or life, basically. <laughs> Some point this week, so all Mets fans, like, say a prayer, put a quarter under your pillow, any kind of weird voodoo magic um, superstitions that you guys have, just seances next few weeks, do things, anything that could, we could do. Because if we can get through this series alive, we have 12 games of very winnable baseball, and then we do have a very big weekend series. I want all Mets fans to circle September 17th, 18th, and 19th, that if we do survive, that's going to that's gonna be it. That's going to be the place. It's because the Phillies, right? Yep. Yeah. There's a th- damn man. This this last month of baseball, month and a half for the Mets is going to be intense. It is going to be tight. It is not going to be easy. But if this Mets team really wants to show that they deserve to be in the playoffs and that they deserve to be one of the better teams in the National League and all this talk from the beginning of the season, they got to step up. It's time. There's no more time for fooling around. No more. We'll get there. You just got to believe. Do what you did this last series. I know we're playing the Dodgers and Giants, so it's not the same as playing the Nationals. But the idea is that they came out, they got the job done. Keep it going. Don't stop. Just give me good games. Fight, like you said. Just try a little. Just just get out there and just play some goddamn baseball. I saw a stat today at the Mets' last three stolen bases as a team are Pete Alonso, Tomas Nito, and Pete Alonso. That was courtesy of Mike Mayer of Metsmerized. We got to be aggressive if you want to be the Dodgers. We can't sit back on our heels and expect to be the team that is clearly better than us on paper with yeah, no. their best three pitchers pitching. Yeah, no, they are really, really good. It is by no means going to be easy, but the Mets, listen, as Pete Alonso said, you got to believe. You got <laughs> to believe in them. You got to believe. You got to believe, guys. <laughs> got to believe. And of course, this is the place to listen to if you want to hear after every single Mets series. We're going to do it again after the Dodgers won, after the Giants won, the rest of the season. So make sure you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram at MetsStup. Follow me and James. I'm at Giraffe Mark. James is Jeter had no range. Fantastic Twitter username, of course. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Watch us on YouTube, youtube.com, Mets Up Podcast. You can find us there for the video version so you can watch James swap flies. Also, plug that we're going to put the Jalen Palmer interview separately on YouTube. Transcribe it because there's some places that audio gets crazy because sometimes professional athletes just don't know to hold their mic up to their face. So we're going to have great subtitles on there. Everyone keep an eye out for that interview. It's going to come out next few days. Yes, keep an eye out for that stuff on the YouTube channel. Keep an eye out for our Twitter, Instagram, tweets, all that stuff, all the Mets content that you guys want to see. The Mets the boys, that's where you want it. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode number 40. Hopefully after this Dodgers series, we're feeling great. I would love to. Let's keep an eye on these games. Let's play some good baseball. And that's where we'll wrap it up, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.